So tonight, the topic is the Buddhist perspective on facing difficulties. And I'll begin by sharing, I don't know if it's a traditional Buddhist story, one that's been passed on to me. There was a farmer who just had a lot of problems, and he counted them up. He had 84 problems. Then he heard about this great teacher, the Buddha. And he figured, I'm going to go and bring my problems to the Buddha. So he comes before the great teacher and says, you know, I hear you're a wise teacher. I have all these problems. And he started to enumerate his problems. The Buddha just listened patiently. And then after he was done with the list of 84 problems, he said, can you help me with these problems? And the Buddha said, no, I can't, but I can help you with the 85th problem. And the farmer was annoyed. What, you mean I have another problem? What's that? And the Buddha said, it's, the problem is you think you shouldn't have problems. And it's funny, it's a, it's a cutesy tale, but when you think about it, Buddhism doesn't give us solutions to our interpersonal problems or certainly social political problems. What it does is it helps adjust our perspective so that we come to whatever difficulties we have with a refreshed perspective, you know. And so it's in that spirit. Um, a few years ago, the, the Buddhist writer Norman Fisher wrote this article that I found, and I'll, I'll, sh- I'll share this when I, share, when I post the Dharma talk, this article. Um, it was called Life's Tough, Here's seven, Six Ways to Deal With It. And he had dug up these six slogans, these six sort of pith teachings from the Buddhist tradition and was sharing them. And so I'm just going to discuss these six pith teachings. The first one is simply turn mishaps into the path. Turn mishaps into the path. And there are a lot of ways to think about this. I'll, I'll start with just interruptions and frustrations and things that knock us off our plan, you know. And of course, it, you know, when we have a plan and we're checking off items on our list, that feels very good, you know. And as we all know, especially in the work world, we can have one plan for what we're going to do and then a whole other set of things interrupts that and we're, we're doing something very different from what we thought we were doing, you know. And so say, say I had planned to do tasks A, B, and C, then some interruption comes and suddenly I'm working on, plas- on task K. Um, of course, Buddhism always recommends being present, you know. If I'm working on task K and I'm thinking I really should be working on A, B, and C, I'm really creating misery for myself. I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm certainly not engaged in what I'm doing. Um, you know, I'm separating myself from myself in some ways. Um, really, the more we can be present with what is, ultimately the happier we will be. It's very strange. Another way to say it is 
that you know the mind has whatever plans it has and of course there's that old there's that old uh line you know how do you make god laugh tell him your plans but plans are something that are just in our head you know and when we go out to the world and events impinge and things that we didn't expect arise all that is the Tao. The Tao is the flow of what's actually happening. You know? And there's great power to be found in aligning with the Tao. You know, and so again, if I wanted to work on tasks A, B, and C, and suddenly for whatever reason, K is put in front of me and I have to work on task K, and I don't have any say in the matter, that's the Tao. You know? And if I'm... If I'm still thinking about A, B, and C, then I'm ignoring the Tao in front of my face. The Tao is always in front of our face. That's the funny thing, you know. And so that's just a a perspective on interruptions. But of course, mishaps, that could be more unpleasant things. That could be accidents. It could be painful separations. It could be heartbreak. How do we embrace that as part of the path? Well, again, if it is what's happening, it's the Tao, you know? And the Tao isn't always pleasant. It isn't always what we choose. But it, but it has the full weight of what is, you know? And we gain very little from trying to go up into our heads and escape what is. You know, in my, my own case, you know, I had all kinds of plans about what, where my life might be going. Um, as some of you know, I have ALS, you know, and which is why this Sangha is on Zoom now and not live anymore. Um, whatever plans I had, they're material now. What the Tao is handing me is ALS, you know. And to deny that, to go into my head to try and fight against it, doesn't bring any happiness, you know? Happiness only comes from arriving in the present moment, you know? Even if the present moment is not one that we choose, we create more happiness by trying to escape it. You know, that, that, that is the tremendous paradox of life. So turn mishaps into the path. That's our first slogan. The second slogan, the second pith teaching, the way it's framed, I like this framing, drive all blame into one. And, and part of what that means is don't blame anyone else. And it really is, how can I say, the, the poet Hafiz calls blame the sad game because it doesn't get us anything. You know, if I blame other people for my problems or I blame the world for my problems, you know, that might, it might feel like I'm doing something. That brings no joy. It brings no healing. It brings no peace. You know, in many ways, it's, it's kind of a, 
it's almost an infantile strategy, you know, infantile strategy of, you know, I'll throw out noise and then hope that the, hope that the world makes my, makes my life better kind of thing, you know. Um, yeah, nothing, nothing good comes from blaming others. But then, then we hear that and then the typical American thing is, oh, well, that means everything is my fault, you know, and then we blame ourselves. Well, and there's, there's nothing helpful about blaming ourselves either. I mean, blame is a sad game all the way around. Part of it is about taking responsibility. And responsibility is one of those, one of those words that sounds lovely, but it just, it's so hard to take responsibility, you know. And it's this very funny thing. I've talked about this before. Obviously, I'm responsible for myself, my own actions. I'm also responsible for everything I feel. Um, Now, clearly, I'm not responsible for what anyone else says or does. I'm certainly not responsible for any larger, you know, social, political happenings. But here's the subtle distinction, and many people miss this. Yeah, I'm not responsible for all those things that happen outside of myself. But I am 100% responsible for how they impact me, for how they make me feel, and for what I make them mean. I'm 100% responsible for how all of that lands in my life. You know? And that, that that's a very subtle distinction. And people... You know, it's very easy to say, well, you know, the other person did this and I I have no control about that, so I'm not responsible at all, you know. But I am responsible for how I'm impacted. I'm responsible for my own boundaries. My own boundaries are not so good that I'm responsible for figuring out how to improve my boundaries, you know, all of that. So responsibility in many ways is the antidote for blame. And blame is, again, blame is the sad game. Blame doesn't get us anywhere. The third one sounds, uh, sounds superficially quite nice. Be grateful to everyone. You know? And... You know, certainly, you know, certainly be grateful to your friends, to your significant others, you know, be grateful to the people in your life. Let them feel, let them know that you appreciate them. You know, certainly be grateful to all the ordinary people who are just working, playing some sort of small role in your life, trying to make your life better. The checker at the grocery store, the 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 person at the mail counter, you know, like all these people that are just doing their job and you're interacting with them for a minute or two, you know, be grateful to what they give you. A few months ago, I talked about gratitude. I talked about the levels of gratitude. Level one is great gratitude for super positive things. Level two is gratitude for ordinary, everyday positive things. And I suggested that a lot of us just have a lot of work to do on level two just appreciating all the wonderful things in our everyday life and being grateful to them. Level three 
little harder, being grateful for the everyday, not-so-fun things, you know? And I think that's, that's the nub in this thing, be grateful to everyone. It means everyone. It means even the person who offends you, even the person who annoys you, even the, the loud person on BART or the, you know, the obnoxious person in the office or, you know, be grateful to everyone. And that's really hard. And again, it's one of these, it's one of these super hard teachings, you know, you know, the, the Buddhist teaching of universal compassion, universal meaning even of those people who drive you crazy. It's much like the Christian teaching, love your enemies, you know, very easy to say, very hard to do. And again, if there's a person driving me crazy, first of all, I'm responsible for all my own feelings. So if I'm around this person and they're making me mad or they're making me annoyed. Those are my feelings. I'm responsible for those feelings. No sense blaming the other person for what I'm feeling, you know. But also, what is it about that person that's triggering me, you know? And, and from a Buddhist perspective, that's the gift of when somebody else triggers you. I get to investigate why was I triggered there? You know, what what am I holding on to? Where am I attached there? You know, and, and it might be that we would not even do that work except for the fact that this other person triggered us, you know. Um, so it's never pleasant in the moment, but it really is any person who, did not, who annoys us, who angers us, who gets our, our hackles up, is giving us a kind of gift. A kind of gift to, of where am I really attached? What is this saying about my, you know, my attachment to the way I want to be comfortable or the way I want to be seen, you know? And how can I be larger? How can I be more noble and less attached to, you know, needing the world to be a certain way? So... Very hard to do, but but a, a wonderful thing just to practice with in the world. Be grateful to everyone. Be grateful to the person who cuts you off in traffic. Be aware, grateful to the person who interrupts you in conversation, you know. Like the, the, the world gives us thousands of opportunities to practice this over and over again, you know. The next one, I love it. See confusion as Buddha and practice emptiness. And confusion is really interesting. Because if you think about it, if we know that we're walking into a totally new situation, totally new, we're usually not confused. We're usually in a place of just very quiet, like checking everything out, being perceptive, you know, that sort of thing. Confusion is something very different. Confusion is when we have a strongly held expectation and then the world doesn't line up with our expectation. You know, so for example, suppose you've been coming to the Sangha for a while and, you know, every week you click the same Zoom link, you arrive at the Sangha. 
Well, imagine one week you click the link and it took you, I don't know, to something like a high school band rehearsing in a garage or something like that. Like, you'd be confused. Like, I did the same thing. Why did it take me to a different place? You know, that would be confusing, you know. Certainly when we have any kind of strongly held expectation that we're, we're living out something that we do regularly, something that we experience regularly, and suddenly that changes without warning. And of course, that, that's just impermanence, you know. Things, the world has all kinds of ways of changing without warning all the time. But that's confusion. A deeper kind of confusion occurs when the expectation is not a, a chosen, rationally decided expectation. So, you know, for example, clicking the link to get to the Sangha, that's something, you know, in your adult life, you, you understand the pattern, and you're making a rational choice to click that link every week to get to the Sangha, you know. But there are expectations that we have that are set up in early childhood. Expectations about what the world means, expectations about how people are, expectations about what you can expect from others or what we deserve from others. Um, and these, these can be very deep expectations. We might not even be, we might not even realize that we're living our lives run by these expectations until one of those expectations is radically interrupted in some ways. And that can, that can result in a core sense of confusion that confusion is often a good thing. Often it's, you know, maybe the first time I'm experiencing something healthy as opposed to dysfunctional, you know. But it, it lands as confusion first, you know. And so confusion is always a profound teaching on our expectations, on what expectations we're holding and how attached we are to our expectations. Another way to frame confusion, the word itself is wonderful. The word itself is con plus fusion. It comes from the Latin fusio or fundo, meaning to melt, to flow into. For example, if an electrical fuse is something that melts or, or fusion is when things, quote unquote, melt together. And there are a few words that have these as a root. So if you think about it, if we refuse the Tao, then we get confused. But if we can infuse the Tao into our being, then we defuse the problems around us. Once again, these, these, these words all from the same root. If we refuse the Tao, we get confused and confounded. But if we can infuse the Tao into our being, then we defuse the problems around us. So confusion is, is in a way a gift when we get it, you know? Like, what, what are the expectations I'm holding on to what is, what is the part of me that's surprised? What is the part of me? What's the way that I think it should be? And how is it different from what actually is? You know, all of that. Um, 
And emptiness here, the, the Buddhist term emptiness, says, again, the, the, the slogan is, see confusion as Buddha and practice emptiness. Emptiness could be a Dharma talk in and of itself. It's a very deep concept. But here it just means, you know, what, what does it mean to live in a world empty of expectations? You know, what if we emptied our mind and emptied our heart of expectations? How would the world appear? You know? So that, that is the fourth slogan. The fifth one, fifth one is kind of interesting. Do good, avoid evil, appreciate your, your lunacy, and pray for help. So it's kind of four parts. And do good, avoid evil. It's, it's funny. I think in the, in the United States, you know, we've had such, such enculturation about, you know, being good little boys and good little girls this whole, you know, Puritan background about you're supposed to do the good thing or God will punish you, you know, this, this kind of message. It makes it hard for us to appreciate what Buddhism is really saying. Buddhism is asking us to follow the Dharma, not because the Buddha is going to punish us if we don't follow the Dharma, but simply if we follow the Dharma, on average, we're going to be happier. We're going to be more aligned with ourselves. We're going to be more peaceful and at ease with ourselves. Like like doing good and avoiding evil, in the Buddhist perspective, it's actually just a recipe for how do we increase our happiness, you know. And so I think that's a very important reframing of the Buddhist teachings. Now the third part, appreciate your lunacy. You know, if we're really honest with ourselves, all of us are a little wacky sometimes, you know? Like, all, like even if we can put on a sane mask during the day, like, all of us have our moments where we're just kind of batshit crazy, you know? And, and part of it is just laughing at that and appreciating that. Like, you know, not being so arrogant. Like, you know, I always have my stuff together, you know? Like, you know just allowing ourselves to have that. That's part of what it is to be human. There's times that we're just kind of unmanageable and that's just, that's just how it is, you know? We all have those moments, you know? And so part of it is just recognizing our humanness and kind of, you know, taking that with a, with a grain of humor, just laughing at our humanness, you know? It's... Uh, it's this strange fantasy that we have, especially in this society. And I think it's, um, I think it's encouraged sometimes by motivational speakers. This, this kind of idea that we should be on 100% of the time. I should be presentable. I should be successful. I should be, you know, etc. 100% of the time. And that's just so unhuman. You know, to be human is to have moments of strength and inspiration and clarity and all that. But it's also to have moments when we're messy and sloppy and out of control and, and wacky and all that, you know. And that, all of that is just part of what it is to be human, you know. And for some reason, everyone in this society wants to be so much better than simply human, you know. 
Now the final part, pray for help. That is also a wonderful correction, and it will it will certainly certainly land a little bit odd because it almost sounds almost sounds Christian. Like what 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 actually does that mean? Pray for help, you know. But um, in a Buddhist concept, well, certainly you know in Mahayana Buddhism, it would be praying to or calling upon the bodhisattvas for help. Um, the uh, way I would think I would change it just slightly, instead of pray for help, be open to the action of grace. Be open to grace helping you. Be open to the miracle of love, the miracle of healing, encountering you and assisting you in ways that you cannot expect and cannot control. You know? And the funny thing is, the more we make a habit of opening to grace and relying on grace, the more grace acts on us. You know? And again, I don't have control over it all. That, you know, part of part of receiving grace is, is the surrendering, the letting go, the, the knowing that I am not in control of it. You know, um, but the more deeply we surrender, the more powerful it acts. You know, and so there's something very powerful there to explore. You know, we and it's a it's a very healthy corrective to the the what I would call the the can do culture of America. You know, and there are a lot of benefits to the can do culture. You know, there's some some problems which I eminently can solve, and I should solve them. You know. But there's a lot that none of us can solve, you know. And when when we reach our own end, doesn't mean we're stuck. It means we open to the action of grace. And grace will grace usually doesn't solve things the way I want them to be solved, but grace will give me a way through, you know. And so it's something to explore. The final one is whatever you meet is the path. And this in some ways is similar to the first one. Whatever you meet is the path. The way I would frame it is all things contain the teaching. And one way to say it is, one way to frame it is, each one of us gets from the universe a completely personalized teaching designed specifically for us. And that teaching is our life exactly as it is right now. You know, the totality of our life as it is right now. You know, and the totality of our life, probably there's some things that are good about it and some things we like. And probably there are also some things we don't like very much, you know. All of that is the teaching. All of that is the teaching I need at this moment for my soul's progress. You know? And it's, how can I say? It's a shift in perspective that is so important because as long as I'm in a place of, you know, 
I don't like this stuff, you know, and fighting against it, resisting it. I'm spending my own energy. I'm wasting my own energy and not really getting anywhere, you know. As soon as I can reframe it as this all is the teaching. Well, first of all, then that that takes me out of a mode where I'm fighting against it. You know, so I save a lot of energy. And it also opens me up to the action of grace, to the action of wisdom. You know. Doesn't mean that as soon as I embrace it as the teaching, I'll get all the answers, you know. And wisdom usually doesn't, you know, obey a timetable that, you know, that's suited to when my head wants to get answers. Um But if we're open, if we're silent and open, insights will come, you know, and it might not be the insights we like. It might might be insights that at least sensibly make things even worse, you know, but the insights that we need will come. And it, it's all about, am I fighting against it or am I willing to learn from it? So at this point, I will share the quote sheet. At the top of the quote sheet, I listed the the six. Oh, hold on a sec. Let's see. Okay, there's the quote sheet. So at the top, I gave the, the link for the article, which I'll also link when I post the chat, the talk, um, the, six, the six pith slogans in Norm Fisher's article. And then I have two quotes from the four quartets. One is, the first is, O voyagers, O seamen, you who came to port and you whose bodies will suffer the trial and judgment of the sea or whatever event, this is your real destination. So Krishna, as when he admonished Arjuna on the field of battle, not farewell, but fare forward, voyagers. The reference to Krishna and Arjuna is a reference to the Bhagavad Gita. And I love that image. You know, how can I say, in our, in our modern world, lots of people go to sea and there's no risk at all. In, in the 19th century, if you set out to sea, there are a lot of people that never looked, got to their destination. Like that was just part of the deal back then. Um, and the idea is you may get to the destination that you planned or you may not. But whatever happens to you, the way he phrases that is your real destination. In other words, that's the Tao, what actually happens. This is other passage. And what you thought you came for is only a shell, a husk of meaning from which the purpose breaks only when it is fulfilled, if at all. Either you had no purpose or the purpose is beyond the end you figured and is altered in fulfillment. 
There are other places which are also the world's end, some at the sea jaws over a dark lake in a desert or in a city. What I like about that is how to say it. In most of the big things that we go into in life, you know, starting a new job, starting a romantic relationship, we might have a purpose. We might start out thinking, I know why I'm doing this, you know. And what I thought I came for is only a shell, a husk of meaning. And the purpose is something else. The purpose grows of its own and kind of, you know, ripens as a fruit and breaks off at some point, you know. Um, and has very little to do with the plan I had in my head. You know. And when we realize that the plan in our head, you know, when, when I'm attached to the plan in my head and suddenly I realize that the plan in my head is, is completely irrelevant, um, that's a, in a way, that's the world's end. That's a kind of, you know, that's an ending of an experience of the world. From Rumi. God turns you from one feeling to another and teaches you by means of opposites so that you will have two wings to fly, not one. Sole idea that if you only had, were happy all the time, then you'd only have one wing and you couldn't fly, you know. From the very wise man, Desiderius Erasmus, I doubt if a single individual could be found from the whole of mankind free from some form of insanity. From Dostoevsky. Much hap unhappiness has come into the world because of bewilderment and things left unsaid. You know, and that's just a challenge for all of us in all of our lives. What are the things left unsaid that we, it would be better if we said, you know? D.T. Suzuki said, The value of human life lies in the fact of suffering. For where there is no suffering, no consciousness of karmic, karmic bondage, there will be no power of attaining spiritual experience. Unless we agree to suffer, we cannot be free from suffering. One of those beautiful paradoxes. G.K. Chesterton said, I maintain that thanks are the highest form of thought and that gratitude is happiness doubled by wonder. Rilke said, if your daily life seems poor, do not blame it. Blame yourself that you are not poet enough to call forth its riches. For the creator, there is no poverty. Einstein said, there are only two ways to live your life, as though nothing is a miracle, or the other is as if everything is a miracle. Henry Miller said, Confusion is a word we have invented for an order which is not understood. That's deep. I like that. Elizabeth Bowen said, I swear that each of us keeps, battened down inside himself, a sort of lunatic giant, impossible, impossible socially, but full scale. And it's the knocking down and battering we sometimes hear 
in each other that keeps our intercourse from utter banality. Joseph Campbell said, your life is the fruit of your own doing. You have no one to blame but yourself. And I would add, you shouldn't blame yourself either. Shunryo Suzuki said, when we do not expect anything, we can be full, we can be ourselves. That is our way to live fully in each moment of time. He also said, treat every moment as your last. It is not a preparation for something else. Arnold Glasow said, a good leader takes a little more than his share of the blame and a little less than his share of the credit. There's something wonderful about that. Robert Anthony said, quite simply, when you blame others, you give up your power to change. Charlotte Joko Beck says, when we refuse to work with our disappointment, we break the precepts. Rather than experience disappointment, we resort to anger, greed, gossip, criticism. Yet it's the moment of being that disappointment which is fruitful. (coughs) And if we're not willing to do that, at least we should notice that we are not willing. The moment of disappointment in life is an incomparable gift that we receive many times a day if we're alert. The gift is, is always present in anyone's life. The moment when it's, the moment when, quote, it's not the way I want it. Zig Ziglar says, gratitude is the healthiest of all human emotions. The more you express gratitude for what you have, the more likely you will have even more to express gratitude for. Jim Rowan says, learn to be thankful for what you already have while you pursue all that you want. Someone who doesn't appear often on my quote sheet, Jacques Derrida, says, monsters cannot be announced. One cannot say, here are our monsters, without immediately turning our monsters, turning the monsters into pets. I love that. Dalai Lama says the roots of all goodness lie in the soil of appreciation for goodness. Pema Chodron said, if you can live with the sadness of human life, what Chong Trumpa often called the tender heart or genuine heart of sadness, if you can be willing to feel fully and acknowledge continually your own sadness and the sadness of life, but at the same time not be drowned in it, because you also remember the vision and power of the great Eastern sun, you can experience balance and completion, completeness, joining heaven and earth, joining vision and practicality. <coughs> we talk about men and women joining heaven and earth, but, but really they are joined. There isn't any separation between samsara and nirvana, between the sadness and pain of samsara and the vision and power of the great Eastern sun. We can hold them both in our hearts, which is actually the purpose of practice. And Pema Children's teacher, Chong Trumpa, said, Real fearlessness is the product of tenderness. It comes from letting the world tickle your heart, 
your raw and beautiful heart. You are willing to open up without resistance or shyness and face the world. You are willing to share your heart with others. He also said, it's much easier to appear holy than to be sane. Tom Peters said, if you're not confused, you're not paying attention. Joseph Goldstein said, the wonderful paradox about the truth of suffering is the, the more we open to it and understand it, the lighter and freer our mind becomes. Our mind becomes more spacious, more open and, and happier as we move past our avoidance and denial to see what is true. We become less driven by compulsive desires and addictions because we see clearly the nature of things as they are. And in a similar vein, Jack Cornfield says, to bow to the fact of our life's sorrows and betrayals is to accept them. And from this deep gesture, we discover that all of life is workable. As we learn to bow, we discover that the heart holds more freedom and compassion than we could imagine. Tara Brock says, we can't understand the nature of reality unless we let go of controlling our experience. <clears throat> she also said, there is something wonderfully bold and liberating about saying yes to our entire imperfect and messy life. Actor and director Ron Howard says, I'd rather risk confusion and stay fresh and stimulated I feel like I'm growing and challenging myself all the time. Gregory Maguire said, as long as people are going to call you a lunatic anyway, why not get the benefit of it? It liberates you from convention. George Saunders says, don't be afraid to be confused. Try to remain permanently confused. Anything is possible. Stay open forever. So open that it hurts. Then open some more until the day you die, world without end. Amen. Tony Robbins says, Live life fully while you're here. Experience everything. Take care of yourself and your friends. Have fun. Be crazy. Be weird. Go out and screw up. You're going to go anyway, so you might as well enjoy the process. Take the opportunity to learn from your mistakes. Find the cause of your problem and eliminate it. Don't try to be perfect. Just be an excellent example of being human. Adi Ashanti says, your life, all of your life, is your path to awakening. By resisting or not dealing with its challenges, you are staying asleep to reality. <coughs> Pay attention to what life is trying to reveal to you. Say yes to its fierce, ruthless, and loving grace. He also said, the true heart of all human beings is the lover of what is. Jay Fizzett said, when you blame yourself or others, you become a victim when you blame yourself or others for some problem or error. Catherine Pulsiver said, when we assign blame, we are pointing the finger 
and who or what is responsible for a fault or wrongdoing. We're trying to make others accountable. Blaming does not solve a problem. It usually only makes people defensive. And Sharon Alder says, the most confused you will ever get is when you try to convince your heart and spirit of something your mind knows is a lie.